Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 11th episode of our second year. It premiered in March of 2011, and it's called Eureka. One stop, change the channel, what you got, risk. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Random Recipe up top. Gorgeous sound. I love the sound. And this is Tristeza behind me now. Our episode today is entitled Eureka! Stories of discoveries and realizations and all that sort of whatnot and who's be gibbets. Our first story comes to us from my dear friend from the People's Improv Theater community up here, Mr. Matt Oberg. He is on the Onion Sports Dome and Comedy Central's Ugly Americans. And he's a handsome-voiced man. I think you'll agree he's a handsome-voiced man. We call Matt's story The Light Switch. My sophomore year of college, I took this creative writing class because what are we going to do? Take an accounting class? You know, it's ridiculous. Um, so, thank you, Kevin. Um, so I take this creative writing class and we're assigned to read these short stories. And for some reason, I actually end up reading some of these, which is not really my style to do the reading, but I did. And I don't remember who wrote the story or what it was called. It's not important. But I'm reading the story, and it's all about this guy who feels compulsions to engage in these ritual behaviors, to do things in these patterns, to touch things a certain number of times, to not step on certain things, to walk through doorways a certain way, to, to, to blink a certain amount of times. And I'm reading this story, and I have this total aha moment, this eureka moment, where I'm like, holy shit, that's me. I did that shit. 
I was totally about that shit. And at the time, I had no idea that anyone else did something that weird like I did, that it had a name. And it was like remembering a dream you had because no one knew about it. I never talked about it. It was something I could keep secret, but I did it for years, starting around, I think around sixth grade. I would do stuff like, I would always have to exit my house through the basement. And um, I would, uh, there was a tennis racket hanging on the wall on the stairs and I would have to tap that against the wall a certain amount of times. There was a paint chip I would have to touch on my way out then I'd have to touch the bottom of the banister. I would pet my cat in multiples of three. I, uh, I took showers in the same exact order, which is not that weird, but I would make a dam with my feet to keep the suds from going down the drain until I was prepared to let them go down the drain. Um, I would pray on my way to school, and the way I would pray, I would, you know, if you squint your eyes really hard, you can hear the blood in your ears. Somehow I knew that then I was connecting to God when I did that. I was wigging out. And um, I talked about it in the class, and then I went home soon after that for Thanksgiving or Christmas. I tell my mom, I'm like, Mom, I totally had obsessive compulsive disorder. Did you know that? And she's like, ah, I knew something was kind of off because one of my rituals was I would balance light switches in the middle. Um, you could turn the light on. It, it would, you could, the light could be on or off, but I would, and it would take time to do that. And um, there was one light in our house that had two switches, and if one of the switches was balanced in the middle, the other switch wouldn't work. My mom would be like, why are you, why are you balancing these light switches in the middle? Um, and Thanksgiving, or, or what, it was Christmas, maybe a lot of my parents' friends are in the mental health community, and um, sort of I start talking about it or something, or my mom starts talking and gets around, and they're all like, oh, interesting, interesting. And uh, I remember this, this one psychiatrist guy is like, well, you know, why did you stop? And I didn't know, and I had to think about why I started doing it, and the sort of common wisdom on it is that People engage in that stuff because they're trying to control things that they don't have any control over. There were two things that I think were really going on. One was, I was a late bloomer. I wanted hair on my legs, on my armpits, on my balls, and it was not happening for me. <laughs> um, I, you know... At summer camp, there were like communal outdoor showers, and it was just traumatic for me. I got very good at like keeping the, like drying off of the towel in front of my bathing suit area. And you see kids with like the horrible, like tween boys with that horrible mustache, and you're like, that poor guy has no idea how stupid he looks. But really what's happening is that you have no idea how 
cool that guy looks because so many people want what he has and he is flaunting it. Um, and it didn't take me long to freak out about being a late bloomer because I remember in sixth grade, my teacher was like, Matthew, um, we need to talk about this fake voice that you have been speaking in. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't really know what you're referring to, Mr. Rankins. Um, so that was going on. And I had this cat that I loved. He was cool. And it was one of my first memories. I remember sitting on the kitchen counter and my dad had found the cat in the woods and brought it home. And it was a, you know, it was a little cat. And he's like, we are taking this cat in. What should we name it? And I remember I was sitting on the kitchen counter and I looked at the toaster. I was like, English muffin. And my parents are like, that is a horrible idea. We're going to call him George. And <laughs> that was a better name. And George was cool. He, could, he was an indoor-outdoor cat. There was a window in the den that he could like jump. He'd go in and out that window and have his cat adventures. And he, we put a bell around his neck that didn't stop him from you know, killing birds and like spitting them on the floor and be like, I got that for you. I don't know why, but there. Um, and at night, you could go outside and you would clap. I'd clap and yell, George, and he'd bound in from, you know, the trees doing whatever he was doing and then sleep inside. I knew that I was going to outlive him because that's, you know, pets die. And I had never known anyone or anything that had died. And I didn't know what it would be like. And it was really scary for me. And this went on for years. I was waiting for puberty. I, you know, 1993, uh, at this point, I'm 16 years old, back at the camp, now a counselor, hey. Um, I'm in charge of eight 11-year-olds, and one day I remember, I'm like, I'm going to go down to the camp store, buy myself some candy. I deserve it. And I go to the camp store, and the lady who runs the camp store is like, oh, okay, yeah, what, what cabin are you in? I tell her the cabin I'm in. I'm like, yeah, and uh, uh, let me get some Skittles. And she's like, wait, what cabin are you in? I tell her, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I can only sell you an apple because clearly you are under 12 years old, and that is the camp rule. I was 16. There's a picture of me on the cover of the camp annual, and you cannot tell that I am not 11 years old. Really, honestly, you can and this whole time, I'm waiting for George to die. Scared about it. He's getting older, getting thinner. You would clap for him some nights, and he wouldn't come back inside and be outside all night, and that scared me to death. And, you know, looking back on it, he was probably just out having cat adventures, probably went down to Catlantic City. You have to do a cat pun if you're telling a cat story. It's just, it's not done. Um, and I'm scared. 16, 17, senior year of high school, I'm still doing all of this stuff most of the time. Tapping and praying and showering. And it was morning, getting ready for my senior year, some day of high school, probably after just having this ridiculous shower routine. And my dad comes up to me and he's like, Matthew, um, last night, George passed away. 
And it was this moment that I had been so freaked out about happening and trying to prevent it from happening and trying to control how it would happen. And I really didn't know how I was going to react. You, you know, you see people react to death on TV and movies and it's like so dramatic and sad. We go down to the basement where George slept and there he is. He's lying on the basement floor on his side. I go to pet him and he's stiff as a board. It was, he was already rigor mortis. And my first reaction was not like weeping, but was like, that's kind of cool, you know? <laughs> and it was relief that I could let go of that. You know, he had lived a long life, 16 times 7, whatever that number is. Science is not there yet. We don't know what 16 times 7 is, but it's up there. It's up there. Um, and my dad's like, well, I guess we got to take him to the vet, and we got a cardboard box. My dad has a keen eye for a good cardboard box, and he had saved just the right one that he fit in, and we bring him to the vet, and the vet loved George, very charismatic cat, and they're like, we are so sorry to hear that. We do have three options for what happens next, you know? And they take out a sheet of paper, and they're like, option A is that he would be buried in a plot, and he would have a stone, and you could go and visit him whenever you wanted to, okay? Option B would be a cremation, uh, and you would be presented with his remains, and you can do with those what you wish. And option C, which is the least expensive, is what is called a group cremation. <laughs> and we do not present you with the remains. <laughs> and my dad and I both look at each other, we're like, See, we'll take C. What are we gonna do? You know, have cat ashes? That's not right. Um, and I just remember feeling relieved that finally, I think that's the way a lot of modern death is. Like you, you know, it's coming now, and you can just—it takes so much energy to be ready for it, and then when it happens. There's a release to it. I go off to college, and soon after that, puberty did hit, gang. It happened for me. Uh, I got hair. I got hair coming out of my nose now, out of my ears, everywhere. If I, I'm pretty sure if I did not groom my nipple hair, I'd have two dreadlocks just growing out of my chest. So um, it just sort of, the compulsions, the OCD faded out as that stuff happened and as I had the other eureka moment that there's no point in trying to control these things because when they happen it doesn't change things that much life goes on now if I feel that urge to do, you know, if you touch those things, be, I, I acknowledge that urge and I dismiss it. If I pray now, I pray to God for the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, uh, the courage to change those that I can, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. And uh, for the most part, so far, uh, he has been hearing those prayers. But just to be sure, let me just get... The end. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. About a year ago, my girlfriend and I decided that we would move in together. And because of the way our lease is lined up and just because her apartment was significantly nicer than mine, we decided to move into her place. Which was great for me for a lot of reasons. One, because Jamie is a wonderful, wonderful human being. She has an amazing apartment. But most importantly, she has the most incredible dog I've ever met in my life. And I'm proud to call him mine now. But at the time, there was this novelty about him because I never had dogs growing up because my family's allergic and also just very lazy. The prospect of having a dog who elicits so much respect around the neighborhood was the most exciting thing I've experienced as an adult. So when Jamie and I first moved in, we sat down to discuss the division of labor vis-a-vis the dog, specifically things like feeding and walking and taking him to the vet and all the other things that come with dog ownership. And what we agreed upon was that I would, every morning before work, take Bentley on a 45-minute walk in the dog park. And the one caveat to our, our whole deal was that I was not permitted to walk Bentley off leash. And when I asked Jamie why, she said, well... You know, I didn't get him until he was six years old, and by that time he'd had his balls for a long time. So even though I had him neutered, I feel like he retained a lot of his aggression as a pit bull. And I said, Jamie, I've had balls for most of my life, and I can assure you that's not how it works. This dog's not going to bite anyone. He sleeps in bed with us. He eats out of our hand. He's the sweetest animal I've ever met. Don't worry about it. Just let me walk him off leash. And she said, Chad, he's my dog. Don't you dare let him off leash. So about three days later, I'm walking him in the park, off-leash, and it is, I'm not exaggerating, the most glorious ten minutes of my entire life. People in dog parks interact like they're BMW owners, like everyone salutes each other and says, oh, handsome animal you have there, and what a beautiful day to walk a dog, things like that. So it felt great, so much so that I completely lost track of where Bentley was. I look up. He's sprinting across the center of the park towards what I see is a young father with a child in a stroller and another pit bull, all white, on a leash. 
Bentley sprinting towards them with purpose. And I think to myself, oh shit, he's going to eat that baby. Well, he didn't eat the baby. What he did do was he tried to eat the dog. And he jumps up, latches onto the dog's cheek just above its teeth, and pulls it down to the ground like a lion pulling down a gazelle in the Serengeti. I sprint over like some sort of idiot Barney Fife, and the first words out of my mouth are, well, what happened? The other dog owner, you know, God bless him, says something to the effect of, your dog is trying to kill my dog. Meanwhile, there's other parents in the area who are herding their children towards them and away from the scene because clearly my dog is out of control and will kill anything in sight. And I look like a complete idiot just standing there letting the whole thing happen. So clearly the onus is on me to do something. Meanwhile, the crowd around us is growing just to see what the outcome of all this is. And they're offering commentary, just stupid things like, boy, that's a lot of blood, and that dog's trying to kill that other dog, and you should put something in his mouth to try to pry him off. Just stupid, not helpful things like that. My first thought is that I should grab Bentley's balls. From what I remember, doing so will cause the dog to release, and disaster can hopefully be averted. Unfortunately, Jamie had Bentley's balls taken out years before, so that's out of the question. My next thought, not a very creative one, was just to start relentlessly punching Bentley in the side and neck, which succeeded really only in making him angrier, I think. And I'm running out of ideas. So I'm staring down my dog's ass, and I realize what I have to do to remedy this situation. I'm not sure if anyone who's listening to this has ever Googled dog anus. In retrospect, I've Googled it several times, and I've learned a thing or two about dog anuses as compared to human anuses. Principally, it's that humans have what's called a rectum. Uh, A rectum is like a little green room for poop right before it comes out. And if you're not pooping, that green room is empty. So you can use a rectum for things like oh, I don't know, drugs if you're going on a trip, or fingers if you're curious or with a new friend or anything like that. So if you put something in a dog's ass, you're not going into a rectum. You're going straight into descending colon and poop. So I'm looking down Bentley's poop hole, and for lack of any better ideas, I just stick my finger in it. So I just take my middle finger... And I sort of politely push it pad first through the triangular door and into his special area. Now, in hindsight, this was silly because to the 20-some people and dogs and children who had gathered around, it looks as if I'm just gently having a finger moment with my dog in front of an audience in the midst of crisis. It also didn't get the job done because Bentley's still gnashing away at this other dog's face, ripping it side to side and further tearing the flesh off. So what I quickly realized is that the fingering needs to be taken to a a higher level. So I use my bowling fingers, my middle and ring finger. I line them up. I push through the door again and go right into this sort of cold lasagna descending colon. And it works. He sort of reared up. The other dog got away, bloody-faced, and Bentley sort of backs away, inexplicably has a massive erection and a huge smile on his face. And there is a very audible sigh of relief from the people who've gathered around and the other dog's owner. His dog was pretty bloody, but everything seemed to be okay otherwise. We exchanged numbers and information. And I then took the walk of shame from the center of the park where all of this went down back to our apartment with my fully erect dog beaming like an idiot. 
We get home. Luckily, Jamie's already left for work. I clean up the dog, clean my fingers off, and I resign myself to never, ever tell her what's happened. Two weeks later, it was a Sunday morning. Jamie and I are walking to brunch, and I see the other dog's owner walking towards us on the same side of the street. And I think to myself, okay, he's going to want to talk, and he deserves to talk, but maybe I can get by here just exchanging vague pleasantries. For a minute it works. He says, hi, how's it going? How's your dog? I say, oh, he's great. How's your dog? Wonderful. And it's just like the typical dog park banter. And then at one point, he delivers the knockout blow by saying, boy, you really got your whole hand up that dog's ass. My girlfriend looks at me and says, what is he talking about? And I say, oh, you know. Uh, She didn't bite. And uh, over brunch that Sunday morning, I got to tell her about the time that I gently and then aggressively fingered our dog's asshole in front of a crowd of 20 or more. Craziness ensued. Craziness was just ensuing on this very program. That was uh, Get in the Bentley, the animated mix by Jeff Barr, who was doing a sound collage representation of the previous story that was also called Get in the Bentley, and it was told by Chad Zimmerman. Before that, another collage by Jeff Barr called Eureka. And this is Cheesesteak by Raleigh Moncrief behind me now. This next story comes to us from the lovely New York storyteller, Joanne Solomon. It is called A Muffin Appears. I spent the better half of my 30s traveling around as an aerialist in a circus tent around the world. And uh, my 20s roaming around alternative theater festivals, handing out flyers for my gay brother, uh, his one-man show about our dead mother. (laughs) Um, So uh, to say that when I met Alejandro, I was seeking stability is a gross, gross understatement. Alejandro is very different than I am. Uh, He he wears a suit and he has health insurance. He makes plans in advance. He had never had a drink before he met me, (laughs) which is never a good sign. Um, And we we fell in love. Um, Nine months into our relationship, uh, I have brought this beautiful Argentine man who doesn't speak English uh, out to the Nevada desert for Burning Man. For those of you who don't know what Burning Man is, oh, I I should say that I was Alejandro's teacher, which makes things just so much hotter. Um, (laughs) 
I, I was his English teacher. So he's still not speaking English. And I bring him out to this festival. Burning Man is a one-week art installation, camping-only festival out in the middle of nowhere. If you have heard of Burning Man and have been told that it's, it's just a bunch of like hippie freaks on drugs dancing around the desert, that is true. Um, there, but there is another element. I mean, I, I hate the drum circle at this point in my life, but I love the art. It's incredible. There's these giant installations. And 50,000 people descend on the desert the last week of August. They build the city. They build these installations. And then they, they burn a man in there somewhere. And then they, a uh, fake man. And then they, and then they uh, take down the city. So I give Alejandro an out. I'm like, Alejandro... Uh, I'm going out for this week. Uh, the conditions are miserable. It's like the moon. It's boiling hot in the day and freezing cold at night. There's a lot of douchebags in costume. You know, if you, if you don't want to go, I totally understand. And there's a silence on the phone, and he says, No, no punk. Don't put labels. Um, so I fly in from New York City, and uh, he flies in uh, from Mexico City. We'd been long distance for a few months, and I, I bring a six-man tent, and I buy him a solar shower, and I get an airbed, uh, an aero mattress, <laughs> and uh, we're on our way out. We're well into our drive into the desert with two bikes strapped to the top of the car when he's like, in truth, I'm not a fan of nature. <laughs> Um, but it would be fun. And he, he genuinely looks so excited to be there. So we drive through the gate, and I realize uh, that it's not going well when a topless woman in a tutu asks him if he'd like a lemonade, and his response is, no, why? <laughs> and I explained to Alejandro that this is Burning Man, Ale. It works on a barter system. There's no money out here. So my brother and I have made quote pins, Gandhi and Nelson Mandela pins, and we give them a quote pin, and they give us lemonade. And he has a blank look on his face, and I said, do you understand? And he says, yes, but no, I won't do that. And that sets the precedent for the rest of our week. There's incredible dust storms out there. I mean, the dust is so fine. It gets in your crow's feet and your, your face and your hair. It's in our tent and our belly buttons. The dust is everywhere. And I make the mistake the first night of putting on a pretty dress that's flowy. And then I catch a glimpse of myself in the morning in a car mirror. And it was like, oh! I, I looked like a corpse because the dust is so fine that it fills all your wrinkles and your hair turns white immediately. In contrast, Alejandro has an exhausting cleansing ritual. He gets up, he uses the shower that I buy him, he puts on a white t-shirt every day. I mean, he basically looks so clean that he looks like he's wearing a clean costume. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, the whole thing is tiring. The, the only thing is that his hair, his hair is totally white by the second day. Uh, it's an occupational hazard of wearing so much gel in the desert. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, things every day seems to be like getting a little bit worse. And in fairness, I've not just brought Alejandro to Burning Man, I've brought him to gay Burning Man. Um, we're in the gay neighborhood of Burning Man, we're with my brother, 
and uh, his husband, and a gaggle of aging, drug-addicted, sexually aggressive, San Francisco, radical gay fairies. Um, and so like, where I'm very comfortable like wearing nothing and being naked because no one's looking at me, he's like, oh, punk, is it okay to tell the men who are watching me take a shower from the RV with birding goggles not to do that? And I'm like, yeah, that, that's okay, that's okay. We wake up in the morning, uh, it's day five, and I say to him, Ale, look, I have to have fun. All my money has been spent on this vacation, and I have to find a, the balance of taking care of you. I had turned into like a weird, we had a weird role reversal. I became like a, an overprotective Latin man. I like was hovering around and making sure that people didn't bother him. And I had been doing so much work taking care of him, I, I sort of forgot to take care of myself. So I went out and I borrowed a dress from my brother, um, and the, the rest of the gays were so excited that I was going out that like tiaras came out of bags and boas and fishnets and Michael was doing my nails and he was like, what took you so long? And, they, and everyone dressed me, I was like a queen. <laughs> they dressed me in this like pink dress and I had blue hair. And we went across, um, there was a, a martini bar and trampoline across the way from our camp. And uh, I'm jumping on the trampoline, and I'm like, Ale, try this. And he's like, no. And I'm like, come on, it's so fun. Neezies, sitsies, upsies, come on, it's fun. And he's like, no, I have to go to the bathroom. And I was like, well, you know where the bathroom is. And I said it in just too harsh a tone that I found him an hour later bawling in the tent. He's like, oh, Joanne, I can't do this. This fucking sand and the gaze and the English, it's too much. I thought it would be okay, but it's not okay. And he's crying and I start to cry and I wipe his face with a baby wipe. And I'm like, let's go home tonight. It's okay, let's go home. And he, he agrees and thanks me. And then um, I go get ready for the critical tit parade. Um, the critical tip parade is a parade of like 800 women celebrating their estrogen and everybody's breasts are painted. And Ale and I go to the parade and it's like all the husbands and boyfriends are sort of supporting their women. And then there's a horrible dust storm. You can't see even an inch in front of your face. And everything stops and it's silent and I'm having trouble breathing because of the dust. And I don't know where he is. And then I hear, Marco. And I'm like, Polo? I had taught a Marco Polo like four months before on a family vacation. And we find each other, and I'm so thankful for his clean shirt because he, he takes off his shirt and puts it over my mouth. And the two of us just start laughing. We just can't stop laughing. And there's bikes everywhere and just hundreds of breasts as far as you can see. And we just, something tipped for us in this moment. And we're riding our bikes back to our camp, and uncharacteristically, it rains in the desert, and there's a full rainbow over Burning Man, and people are clapping like somebody's running towards the rainbow. Um, it's like a very beautiful moment, and I think this is the perfect time to leave. As I told you before, Alejandro doesn't drink, which is why what I'm going to say is a little suspicious. I'm like, Ale, help me pack. And he's like, no, Joanne. Let's take that pill your brother suggested. And I'm like, you mean the ecstasy? And he's like, yeah, let's try it. So we end up staying and, and taking the ecstasy. And uh, <laughs> we are sitting watching a circus when he says, Hermosa, can we leave the circus? 
And I'm, I say, absolutely. And he's like, I think it's kicking. It's kicking. <laughs> and then we go in, into the street and he's like, oh, Hermoso, I have to thank you. This is maybe the best 37 years of my life. And this experience, it's so open. And you have no idea what it's like to grow up in South America in a country without this type of infrastructure. We couldn't do this in, in Mexico City or Buenos Aires. And do you know how growing up in the wake of a military government shapes you and how lucky you are? And only here in the United States, you have this, all this. And I love you and I'm so glad. Oh, suddenly a muffin appear. <laughs> And I said, what? And he's like, suddenly a muffin appear. And I like look over and no, it's not the drugs. It's just like an actual huge life-size muffin <laughs> truck, like roaming across the desert. And with like neon lights and styrofoam that looks like icing. And we're just like mesmerized by this muffin. And we, we sort of follow it a bit and then it's really loud and we, we find a flapper couple and there's a guy in a bowler and a woman in a fringe dress and the woman recognizes that um, he's a little scared and she's so soft with him and she's like, take my water and don't worry. And uh, the guy in the bowler gives me a candy because my jaw's like... Rrr, rrr. And uh, he's like, about a mile in the desert, there's a little mushroom house. Go, go. I, I promise you it's worth it. And the two of us walk out to the mushroom house and we find it. And there's a little blanket inside and a light and it looks like a mushroom. And we talk all night about everything, about our family, our past. But mostly Alejandro wants to deconstruct the gay couples living in our camp. He's like, I don't understand Mark and Carlo. He's like, Mark is so beautiful, he's so beautiful. But Carlo, he's a little, of a, he's a little bit of a bitch, no? <laughs> <laughs> and we talk all night and the sun's coming up and he's like, let's go hang out with your brother and the guys. So we walk back to camp and he's out sort of socializing for the first time. And I'm packing the tent. When he comes and he grabs me and he takes me across to the trampoline. He's like, I want to do the thing. And so he gets on the trampoline and I'm like, come on, let's go. I'm so tired. And he's like, no, 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 teach me the thing. And I say, you mean kneesies, sitsies, upsies? And he's like, yeah. And he tries to sit and then get on his knees. And, and he's just jumping. And his hair's gray. And I'm on the ground looking up. And I'm very choked up. I mean, it, it's possible it was the drugs. But I, I'm so uh, thrilled that this man has let me in on his journey. And I, I, I can't stop thinking how much better my experience has been seeing it through his eyes. Um, and he's jumping, and I say, Alejandro, thank you, I love you. And of course, suddenly the muffin appeared. <laughs> thank you. This week in Unfortunate Names Through History, we will meet Jebediah and Eureka Tablemaker, a young couple who left their profession of chairmaking to head out west and strike it rich in the California gold rush. The year is 1850. This is their story. Eureka! What's that? You found some gold, son? No, I was calling for my wife. My wife's name is Eureka. Well, that's confusing. Eureka! Did you find my wife? Did you find some gold, Luigi? No, I was telling my friend Tony he stinks. Eureka, Tony! My mistake, but that is also quite confusing. You do stink, though, Tony. Pew! Eureka! Yes, that's me. I'm here. Did you need me? No! I struck gold! Shut up, bitch! 
This has been Unfortunate Names in History. Join us next week as we explore the lives of 17th century plantation owners, John and Linda Slavesloose. That's New York sketch comedy duo Both, and they're up for an ECNY Award this year, so we wish them the best of luck. This is Million Young behind me now, and our final story comes to us from, I love this lady, Miss Heather Lawless, never not hilarious, and just such a fascinating presence on stage. The great comedian Heather Lawless with what we all know to be tremendous. Everyone um, in my family uh, had dark you know, hair and uh, dark eyes and um, really nice skin, skin that like, just tanned really well. And um, they all just you know, smelled really good and had pretty mouths. So when my mom told me that I was adopted, I, um, it didn't come, you know, as any uh, big, big surprise, because at the time my hair was white, and I was, you know, around nine or ten, and I thought I was an albino anyway, and so, um, everything kind of came together when she told me that, you know, in fact I was adopted, and then, um, so that wasn't a big shock. The big shock came a couple of months later when she pulled me aside and said that she had forgotten to tell me that she had just been just been teasing around, and um, <laughs> and that um, that I wasn't adopted, and um, <laughs> she was. Uh, sorry for any, you know, confusion or upset um, that her sense of humor may have caused me. Um, but um, and and she and then she just sort of added, um, you know, that she had forgotten how gullible I could be, um, and you know that was sort of put it on me. Um, <laughs> but. Um, but I remember not even, tr- I truly don't even think I cared um, one way or the other. And, um, and I, the, I, I sort of more wanted to be blood related to my mother because um, she had, I mean, this was the truth. She had um, the most glorious bosoms. Um, I, I, I mean, I, it truly just blew me away every time I would um, be around them. I was, you know, I was mildly obsessed with them, and um, and that you know being blood related just meant you know there was just a possibility that I might you know inherit them, you know and and grow grow bosoms that that big and um, they were big but yet classy at the same time they were just a, a hybrid of both and at the time. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I was developing earlier, but um, I was wearing a bra, but I was only developing one, you know, one bosom. So, so I had to um, put things, um, I had to just 
you know, fix my body in a certain way. So I filled one one bosom filled this, you know, the bra on one side, and then I just had to sort of improvise on the other. But um, so then finally, my my second breast did develop about three years later. <coughs> so, and so um, I was grateful for that, but. Um, so, I, I mean, I was truly obsessed with my mother, and any time I would tell her, I just, you know, I was young, I was in love with her, and it was sort of a schoolgirl crush on her, and um, not, not my sister, but just really honed in on my mom, and any time I would give her a compliment or, or watch her get dressed or undressed or sneak in there and watch her shower... Um, <laughs> I would, you know, I'd say, God, you're just, you're just bosom. Do you think my bosoms will ever, if I'll ever have bosoms, plural, but do, do you think that, you know, they'll be as, as beautiful as yours? And, um, you know, I mean, and she would just, just say, she always had two kind of stock answers. Just, um, you know, Heather, I've always known you are a very sexual person. And um, that didn't, <laughs> I couldn't really wrap my head around that. Uh, at, you know, at 10, I was just like, um, I, don't, I don't know if I sort of blacked out at that moment or what, what happened. I just was sort of looking for a thank you or something. And, um, and then the other one was, you know, she would say, you know, Heather, you know, there's always going to be somebody, <laughs> somebody smarter and um, somebody prettier and somebody more popular and sexual than you. And... Um, <laughs> And you just have to, you know, deal with your limitations and just try to be the best that you can be. And um, <clears throat> so, I, I mean, fortunately, I, I got a little older and I, I um, stopped obsessing so much about her and, and then started re really um, getting, getting, getting into my own physicality and, and sexuality. And, and I would <clears throat> truly, I mean, and again, I was t 10 or, I don't know, I was around that, that area. And... Um, I just became, you know, I would spend just a tremendous amount of time um, just in my in in my room, just like counting my pubic hair. Um, I would just count it and re recount it, just see if anything happened. And and, um, and and I spent, I mean, just true. And it was kind of, it was a little bit lighter, so it was t difficult. And I would think I'd maybe miscounted or possibly lost a couple. But but and and then I would get. Um, I got super into just like shoving stuffed animals down my pants. That was my big, big go-to move. Um, I would just, and I don't know, I, would, I don't, you know, I, I can't break that down um, why I was doing that. <clears throat> I'm sure I could, but but I don't want to. And then I went when. When I would finally just sort of tire of those activities, I, I remember just getting, um, you know, I would turn my attention to my um, my, <laughs> my best friend, which was, you know, just of course, um, or maybe not, but just my, my um, you know, family dog, Peaches, because she was always in heat. And, um, and I'm sure she wasn't, but that, that was my, her, just the swelling of her vulva. Um, I feel like it just happened on a rapid fire, but, um, and I just, I mean, truly I could, I mean, I see it right now. Um, I can see it right now and, um, <laughs> I can still see it right now. And just, so, but fortunately my mom, and I guess it, they, the vulvas, uh, you know, they 
swell and then they they you know sometimes they'll spot or bleed and so my mom would you know make whatever like one of those little homemade um, diapers and um, just so she wouldn't get her scent like her vaginal discharge or whatever I mean that's a veterinarian I mean I'm not and so they would um, they would put that diaper on her just so she wouldn't get her scent up on our furniture or her bleed or anything and um, <clears throat> And I was just sort of, I was just, I just thought the swelling was obscene and, and I was, so, but I was still just so fixated on it. And, uh, and then I just noticed all the dogs hanging around and, um, and I just <laughs> watching them just hunt her and, um, and I would watch her just to see what she was going to do with all that, um, attention. And I, I, I I realized I was my, you know, sort of envious and, um, kind of aroused I mean it, it was um, and so and this is I don't even know if I my, I mean this isn't totally probably not a good um, you know it just doesn't uh, it's not very well I'd let peaches out um, I mean there was just like all these dogs around that was the number one thing keep the the you know the dog inside the house and and I, I purposefully you know let her out of course I said it was an accident and I watched her get pregnant and and I, I watched her I watched all I mean because it was just a matter of seconds before all and there's no you know they don't use I mean you know when they're in that that state they don't use any um, you know any discretion whatsoever and I later could relate but at the time I just didn't I didn't know what was going on so I watched these dogs pound her, and I don't know who, uh, <clears throat> you know, and she came inside, she was all wet. I realized, that, I mean, you know, just from there panting her, I mean, she was, she loved it. Um, <laughs> she loved it. But, and I was disgusted by my own arousal, and, um, and, and I replayed the, you know, the scenario constantly. I, <laughs> but basically, I, that was at the height of my my sexual frustration, um, and 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 there was just a, a firebomb in my pants. Like I, I, it was truly just just a rage happening, and um, and we took about that time we went on a, a family trip up to my grandparents' house in um, in Bowie, Maryland, and it was like a 14-hour drive from Georgia where, where we lived, and it was a family trip, and the dog, and my brother and sister, my mom and dad, and that just, you know, fueled my, my just my mess in my pants. I mean, I just felt like, oh my God, my brother and sister, they, they can actually feel the heat generating in my pants right now. And I just stared out the window, just like, just thinking of all different ways I could just abuse myself down there. And by the time we turned the, the corner into my grandparents' neighborhood, um, I just was an absolute, I, I was just in sheer panic that if my grandmother or grandfather hugged me the wrong or right way that I would truly just climax on them by accident. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I was just cr crippled by fear that that was gonna, <laughs> my grandmother wanted to show us all these tricks that her dog, you know, she had taught her dog. I, and I just was in a full, I was just in survival mode um, at that point. So I ran to their bathroom, I knew their house, and I ran to their back bathroom where they kept all their crossword puzzles, um, just stacked, you know, um, just all these crossword puzzle magazines. And I, I went back there and I just was like, <laughs> I just was truly, I was just, I was losing my mind, and 
I just balled up like this shag bath mat. And um, I just like truly just threw myself on it and just just humped it like an, an absolute just animal. Um, to, and, and I remember just th- thinking, you know, just the feeling of, um, and I knew I was getting some sort of, you know, rug burning. And I didn't even care. I just was so, I just was beating it to death. I was just need, needing it, just just pulverizing it. And um, and I remember like I couldn't close my eyes because I, if I closed my eyes, you know, I would have the image of my my dog getting pounded, and it was like a flickering, you know, some sort of weird movie that was playing. So I kept my eyes open. I just kept seeing crossword puzzle words, and um, and I didn't even know what I was doing, but I knew I was I was about to to go head 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 into like just the most epic feeling and. And um, and I did, and it was it was um, you know it was what we all know to be tremendous, and um, and but then so short lived, you know. Then it was that thing of directly. So I was like, God, this is you know. I now I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like it truly was that moment of like I know what my passion is. Um, <laughs> I, I you know do what you love, and the money will come. This is what I love, and. It was that feeling of like this. I, this I found it. Now I know my purpose, and this is what I'm going to go out and do. And I don't. I can't believe more people don't do it. And um, and then you know moments later, it was just the deepest, darkest disgust of myself, just pulling myself up off that. Sh- I was just just. I felt like I had just been violated and and violated other things. I just was so disgusted with myself, and I had to like straighten out the bath mat and put it in its proper form. And unlock the door, and you know, go have Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, with with the family. And it truly, it was the first time. You know, it was the first, and so I was wanting it to, you know, be. I, I felt so hideous about myself, and I vowed that I would never, ever, ever do that again. And um, you know, and then that was super short lived. I was back into the bathroom within two hours. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, I went, I said, you know, I'm never going to do this again. And, um, and I spent the rest of the, you know, the Thanksgiving holiday and, and the rest of my, my entire life, um, you know, <laughs> um, just beaten up on different objects. Um, okay, thank you very much. Thank you. all she wrote this week folks this is go home productions with uh don't hold back sweet jane well this was risk i'm kevin allison our live show producer in new york is michelle walson 
Our live show producer in L.A. is Madison Perry, our person who is currently doing so much for us that I'm not sure what to call him, is Chris Castiglione. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are David Crabb, Andy Croner, Jeff Mersel, and Jeff Barr. Our associate producers are Nina Moses and Paul Gale. And my brand new personal assistant is JC. Folks, this is the day. Take a risk. Take a risk.